As you all sit here in front of me this morning, it would be a safe assumption to make that every single one of you is looking forward to something. We have plans for something in the future. Whether it's short-term, thinking about your lunch date after service this morning, or perhaps getting back to the workplace on Monday morning. Maybe it's medium-term, something that's occurring in the next few weeks or months, anticipating the birth of your first or second child an oncoming vacation, a visit from friends or family. Perhaps it's longer term. Perhaps you're looking at a decade or two or three until you can retire. Unless, of course, you're a pastor. We don't retire. We just die, (laughs) which is a good thing. Or maybe you're looking forward to having grandkids one day, even though your children are still in elementary school. Something longer term. We all look forward to something, especially when it's something that we have planned and purposed for a very long time. The more we plan it, the more we look forward to it, the more we anticipate it and we long for it. Well, there has been perhaps nothing more planned in terms of duration as well as depth and wisdom than the end times of all things. The resurrection of all men, all believers and unbelievers, as we'll see in a moment, the first fruits of which was Jesus Christ and the coming of which the harvest, the raising up of the dead. This has been planned and purposed in the mind of God before even time began, and we have seen that plan come in its infant stages with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As believers, we long for that. We look forward to that day. But like retirement, for some of us, we lose sight of it. We tuck it in the back of our minds because it's very far away, or so we think. At the very least, if we're being accurate and biblical and theological, we don't know when all of this will come, when He will come again, when the rapture will occur. And so we tuck it away, and we live our lives as best we can just as you're doing right now, just as you will do tomorrow at work. Yes, there's a vacation coming. Yes, there are visitations. Yes, retirement is on the horizon, but you do your best to focus on the here and now with a longing for what is coming in the future. The danger of that is that the future becomes almost unreal to us. And so we focus too much on the here and now. And so this morning, as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, I want us to see what the future holds so that we can be renewed in our vigor for longing for that, waiting for it, desiring it, for the Lord, my friends, is coming again. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We find ourselves in a series called Resurrection Reality, which is found in all of 1 Corinthians 15. We've been looking at verses 20 through 24. Two weeks ago, taking a break for Resurrection Sunday, we started this passage. I want to read it for you. Again, we're in verses 20 through 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. We've been looking at four stages of the resurrection plan, understanding that this was a plan. We are in the middle of the plan, not just in our study, but in the timeline of the history of the world. We are in the middle of the plan. And by way of review, we looked at two stages of this resurrection plan a couple weeks ago. I want to review those for you briefly. The first was the resurrection pledge. The resurrection pledge or promise in verse 20, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. This first stage of the plan goes into the past, at least for us. It goes back to Christ's resurrection some 2,000 years ago. And Paul says that Jesus is, quote, the firstfruits of those who are asleep, which is simply a euphemism for those who are dead but will rise again. The concept of first fruits comes from the Old Testament. The Israelites were required to literally give the first of their crop, the first fruits or flock to the Lord in thanksgiving. And in doing so, they were showing their dedication as well as gratitude to the Lord by sacrificing the first of their long-awaited harvest. Not taking the first grain in a tasting or celebratory meal, but giving it sacrificially, all of it, to the Lord. And we saw that this was not merely a type of sacrifice symbolizing the Israelites' dedication to the Lord. In large part, it was that. But it was also a symbol of the Lord's dedication to them, to the Israelites. Because that offering of the first fruits was a promise of more to come from the Lord, just as it was a pledge of more to come from the sacrificer, the Israelites. The more to come was to be of the same in character and in quality. In other words, not only the same type of crop, but the farmer could rest assured that the first fruits was not, only, was not going to be their only healthy harvest. The rest would be healthy too. And when you apply this to the Lord's resurrection, His resurrection becomes the pledge and guarantee of the full harvest of resurrections. In other words, when Jesus was raised from the dead, He became the representation and promise of all future resurrections. By His being raised, we know that the rest of the crop is coming with the same character and same quality. Part of that same character and quality means that our resurrection, being like Christ, means that we will be raised to never die again, to live for eternity. This is the future. This is eternal life. And so ours will be the same as His, fully functioning, glorified bodies, and never to die again. Then a couple weeks ago, we saw the second stage of the resurrection plan, the representative pedigree. The representative pedigree in verses 21 through 22, which say, For since by a man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This brings us to the present. 
having seen the past in Christ's first fruits resurrection. Here, Paul uses the same terminology that he uses in the more familiar Romans chapter 5, where we find that profound discourse on sin imputed from Adam and righteousness gifted by Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the death from Adam, which is because of sin from Adam, death being the results of sin. All of humanity is technically and biologically in Adam. In other words, the universality of death is because of Adam. In Christ, however, we have the resurrection of the dead, verse 22, whereby all believers who die will be made alive again. We're not talking about heaven, which is a temporary holding place. If you were to die today, you would instantly be transferred to heaven, but your physical body would stay here. What we're talking about will be made alive again is a resurrection in a physical, human, but glorified body. Unlike the comprehensive attachment to Adam, however, only true believers are in Christ. And so in Christ, those who are made alive are those who are in Christ, Christians. And this brings us to verses to verse 23 and our third stage of the resurrection plan, new material for us this morning. The third stage of the resurrection plan is the ranking progression. The ranking progression. We will see that there are resurrections, but there is an order to which they, these will take place in the future and in the past. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. Speaking of the resurrections, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. In terms of a progressive historical timeline, we are now entering the future. Specifically in this verse, Paul is connecting the past resurrection of Jesus Christ to the future resurrection of his children. Remember, we're talking about a plan here, a plan of God, a plan not just for the sake of a sermon outline, but in reflection of God the Father's actual plan since day one, before day one, technically. And like any good plan, there is an order. It's not a good plan if you just say, well, this stuff will happen. When's it going to happen? Who comes first? I don't know. We'll see. He has it all planned out in intimate detail. And the word that Paul uses here, the word order in the NAS, is an older military term that could speak of the rank and order used in an army. You can picture that in your mind when you see military of any country standing to attention. And when they do that, on the battlefield, the soldiers could be dispatched in an orderly fashion according to the will of the commanding officer. This regiment, this regiment, that regiment, in order according to the will of the commanding officer. Now this word could also be used, we're talking about the Greek here by the way, this Greek word could also be used of any sort of group with places and positions. Again, Order is a fitting word in the English. And so we see the clear connection to the order of resurrections in the plan of God, which is, of course, according to His will. The first order was Christ, who rose from the dead, 
as we just saw, establishing and initiating many things, victory over death, the restoration of all things, power over sin. But again, most importantly in this context, the promise of future resurrections. After Christ, the first fruits comes the harvest, the resurrection of His people, us. And we're given a clue as to when this will happen at His coming. As we know, Christ promised to return again, an event that we eagerly anticipate. The word coming is a familiar word to you, to many of you in the Greek, parousia. You've probably heard that because it became a technical term referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that is included in, the, in Paul's usage here, but it starts earlier Uh, than the official second coming with the rapture, as we'll see in a moment. Coming means arrival, coming. It includes the sense of being present. It talks about someone's presence. So he doesn't just come, ring the doorbell, and leave, drop off the package. He comes, and he will be present, or we will be present with him. And in Paul's day, this term was used for the arrival or visit of a king or the emperor, It was also used when speaking of the supposed appearance of a god. And the Corinthians would be familiar in this time in the Roman Empire with the parades, the excitement, the pomp and circumstance of a visit from the emperor. You've seen depictions of this on your television screen. People screaming, people cheering, chariots, horses, flowers floating from above. It was a big deal. And so, especially in the context and minds of the Corinthians who are reading this letter for the first time, how fitting that this word is used of the coming of the Lord. Well, speaking of the order of resurrections, it is at this time that the believers will be resurrected, again following the pattern and character of the first fruits, Jesus Christ. And with this, we are taken to the very edge of, the very doorway of eschatological promises. This is the beginning of the end. All of this culminating with eternity or the eternal state. As far as resurrections go, there's also an order of which believers are resurrected when. In our passage this morning, Paul does not go into those details, but I want to briefly fill you in here. The first to be raised from the dead are Christians from the church age. The church age is right now. So all believers who die from the time of Pentecost, which began the church age, up until the rapture, which has not come yet. It is still future. This would include us, assuming that the rapture does not come in our lifetimes. So assuming that we die before the rapture. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So again, we're talking about the order of resurrections that Paul mentions here or refers to. And so after Christ, the first is those who die in the church age. The reason those who are alive, Christians who are alive at the rapture will not be resurrected um, at this time is because their bodies will be taken up at the rapture. 
You can only be made alive again if you're dead, to put it simply. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is a timeline here. So at this point, the dead in Christ will rise first. What is about to happen is the rapture. So if he's talking about the rapture and then refers to the dead in Christ, obviously he's talking about those who died in Christ before what he's about to explain in verse 17. Then we who are alive, and so these are Christians who are alive when the rapture occurs and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And as far as resurrections are concerned, Verse 16 talks about those church-age resurrections. Anyone else who was alive at the time, verse 17, will be raptured. So, cutting out the details, simply put, if we're looking at the timeline and doing overview bullet point fashion, the first to be resurrected after Christ will be dead believers from the church age. After us, come the tribulation saints. These are the people who at the time of the rapture are not believers. And so they're not raptured. They're still alive. And so they enter the seven-year tribulation period. We know that there will be 144,000 witnesses who will be sharing the gospel. There will also be leftover Bibles. Bibles won't be raptured. Media won't be raptured. The internet won't be raptured. So there'll be sermons. There'll be blogs. There'll be tapes. There'll be CDs. There'll be people who are in the church and have heard the gospel but never accepted. There'll be people who thought they accepted, but when the rapture comes, were left behind, realized they were never true believers. What am I explaining here? I'm explaining how people will come to saving faith during the tribulation, even though all Christians will be gone because we'll be raptured up. Because there'll be people who have shared the gospel, sermon tapes, things like that. Okay? Um, there will undoubtedly, undoubtedly be pastors who thought they were believers but never truly gave their lives to Christ and they'll still be there holding church, preaching and saying, now I know the truth. And so, during that time, many of these people who come to Christ will be killed. They will be killed by the Antichrist by law because they will not take the mark of the beast. And so, these people will then be the next group by the way, if you want to read more about the seven-year tribulation, it is described in every stage from Revelation 5 through 19. Now, the resurrection of the tribulation saints is described in Revelation 20 and verse 4. Let me read that for you. Again, this is a vision. That's why John says, then I saw. He's seeing a vision of future things. He says, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And this is how we, not only because of the explanation of the tribulation from Revelation 5 through 19, and this is now the next thing in Revelation 20, but also this next passage, those who had be, been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, 
and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So this is why believers during the tribulation will be beheaded. Okay, they're going to go old school and, and basically do capital punishment in the, the worst way, whether by axe or guillotine or something like that. Believers will be killed because they won't take the mark of the beast, which will be necessary to buy food, to have a job, things like that. And they had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. You guys are uh, probably familiar with that. The mark, the number that the Antichrist happens to get will be 666, although everyone will get a number. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so these tribulation martyrs will be raised in glorified bodies so that they will reign for a thousand years with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. Thirdly, and finally, we have the Old Testament saints who will be resurrected, and we see that in Daniel 12.2 and Isaiah 26.19. And so that's the order of the resurrections. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's purpose here is to explain resurrection, not the full schedule of the end times, which is clear elsewhere in Scripture, And so he skips, really, the tribulation, he skips the second coming, he skips the millennial reign, he skips the final rebellion, and just goes to the very end, which we'll see in our next point. I do want to make a clarification in this, and again, it's not in our text this morning, I made mention of it earlier, but I want to make sure that whether you are Christian this morning or not, I want you to understand that the Bible is clear that unbelievers will also be resurrected in bodily form. Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians 15 has been the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those who are in him. So he doesn't mention unbelievers. But in Revelation 20 and verse 5, the verse after the verse I just read regarding the the tribulation saints, it says this, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then the end of the verse, if you're looking at it, can be confusing. He says this is the first resurrection going back in context to what he was writing about before. So the main part is the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So after the thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ is the resurrection of unbelievers. Why? In John 5, 29, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 29, we are told of a resurrection to life, believers, and a resurrection of judgment, unbelievers. Everyone will be resurrected. Resurrection to life, if you recall from a couple weeks ago when I referred to that, uh, frame, that phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, will be made alive That phrase is never used of unbelievers in the Scriptures because it's made alive to glory and glorified bodies. But what is this resurrection of judgment of unbelievers? Just as we live eternally in physical bodies, so unbelievers also live eternally in physical bodies. And if you haven't put two and two together in your mind, 
that's part of why the physical torment of hell forever is so brutal. Because they are reunited with bodies that have brains and skin and nerves. We will all be resurrected one day. The question is, is it to life or to judgment? Back to our text, and specifically back to the resurrection of believers. After all of this happens, the first fruits, then the harvest, we are led to the end. Again, Paul skips most of the end times events and brings us to the border of the eternal state. And so we see our fourth stage of the resurrection plan, the resplendent presentation. We've seen the resurrection pledge, the representative pedigree, the ranking progression, and finally, the resplendent presentation. Verse 24, then comes the end. When He, Jesus Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He, Jesus Christ, has abolished all rule and all authority and power. We know He is continuing a sequential timeline with the word then. This was a technical term that was also used to indicate finality or final consummation. And that's exactly what we have here. Paul refers to it as the end. Not the end of the Gospels, not the end of Jesus' life, not the end of the early church. The end. It's the end of the age. You could say it's the end of the world as we know it, the end of the current world order. It is the final chapter of world history. This reminds us that there is a definitive plan and schedule that God is sticking to. We know that He has the dates in His mind. He has not revealed those to us. You know, often in our culture and our society, people talk about the end is near. The world is coming to an end. So what do they do? Some try to predict it. Most in our society try to delay it or avoid it altogether. There are some things that we practice that's fine. They're neutral. But all of these things that we're trying to do to somehow preserve the earth longer, carbon emissions, recycling, all of those things are good if you understand that they're just temporary to keep our world clean should the Lord tarry. But the world is not going to end because of us in terms of overusage of plastics and styrofoam. It is going to come to an end because of us and our sin in the big picture. But it's kind of like eating healthy and working out. How about that? You know as a believer and even as an unbeliever that you could work out and be super healthy and get hit by a bus tomorrow. And people who work out and try to live longer, they understand that. They know that. But perhaps it's an issue of quality of life until that time. Or if that doesn't happen, we can maybe just enjoy a little longer. 
be able to toss the grandkids up in the air when you're in your 70s or 80s, things like that. But we all know that we could die in the gym. I've known of people who've done that, having brain aneurysms, things like that. And what I'm likening that to is our efforts to save the planet. You know as a believer you're not going to save the planet. I hope you understand that. I hope you use that term if you use that term to just justify recycling or whatever it is. You cannot save the planet from the devastation and destruction from God Almighty. It is His. He will do with it as He pleases, and He has already told us what pleases Him to do, and it is coming. And so if you want to do those things, that's fine for quality of life now. A few extra bucks if you're bringing in your recycles to get paid, whatever it may be. But you have to have the right theology and understand that this, there, there aren't two options. We can either save the planet or God will destroy it. No, God's going to destroy it. It's the end of all things. It is the end. So be careful that we don't go too far in our thinking that we can do anything about that because we cannot. There is a plan and God is sticking to it. Try to delay it, try to predict it. Ultimately, nobody in our society knows how it ends. There are hypotheses. There are there is science fiction, there are imaginative stories, some which actually get pursued through scientific methods. But we know how it ends. We've always known that there is an end, and the end is in control of God. In Matthew thirteen thirty-nine and verse 30, 49, Jesus speaks of the end of the age. In 1 Peter 4, 7, we are told that, quote, the end of all things is near. And then, perhaps my favorite, and it doesn't speak directly to this, but assumes it, is that powerful passage that I'd like you to turn to on biblical fellowship, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, which encapsulate for us the meaning and importance of gathering as believers. And perhaps that's why I like it so much as a pastor. It gives us theology as well as practical application. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. The importance of church. The importance of coming to church. People say, well, you know, it's, it's not a, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't tell me it's about coming to church. Yes, it is. Hebrews 10. Go to church. Come to church. Preaching to the choir, of course, you're here. Thanks for coming. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Stop there. So he's saying, not only... Should you be at the assembling of believers together? Okay, clearly, he's talking about 
the group of believers together. He's clearly talking about worship service. He's talking about church. It's not just, I don't need to go to church. I uh, meet with a Christian at least once a week to have coffee, watch a movie, play football. Obviously, in the context, this is all of our assembling together. And he says, do not forsake it. And I want to make a clarification of this. Forsaking is a strong word. You cannot say, oh, you had COVID and didn't come to church. You're forsaking the assembling. How shame on you. Come. Infect us all. Hebrews 10. We'll die together and be resurrected. No. Forsaking means purposely choosing to not go. You don't forget about family dinner and they say, you're forsaking us. Have you disowned us? No, you just forgot. But when you say, mom, dad, this is it. I'm tired of it. I'm not coming. That's forsaking. That's choosing. You get called into work. Hmm, Okay, I get it. But when you're constantly, purposely picking up Sunday shifts, that's forsaking because you have a choice. When you're in that job interview and someone says, you're going to have to work Sunday mornings for the next five years, is that okay? And you choose that job, that's forsaking. You have a choice. You made a choice to not go. And it could be something smaller than that, just tired of the people, I feel lonely, no one talks to me, whatever it may be. That's still, as a believer, between you and the Lord, you're forsaking the assembling together. And I want to go back. And I know the rabbit trail is just getting further and further from resurrection here, but I got to mention it. He says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulate. Right? We, we understand that word, but we also, in terms of, you know, the, oh, that's stimulating. That book was stimulating. But we also know that word in terms of, I guess, science, where you use an electrode and put electricity through something and you stimulate the nerve, you stimulate the muscle. Its idea has both of those ideas here, to prick, to wake up, to shock someone. And what he is saying in modern practical terms is when you go to church and when you truly practice this and understand this, it's going to be well before you get to church, think through how you can help others desire, then practice love and good deeds. Think through. You know who's coming for the most part. You know who's going to be there. Do you think through, oh yeah, I want to tell this guy and help him because of what he shared in small group, how he can pursue Christ more, love others more. Or do you just come and rub the sleep out of your eyes and try to find a seat? It's not about just hearing a sermon. It's not about just taking a break from the world. That's all part of it. But it's the one opportunity where your whole church family is here where you can say, how can I make other people a better Christian? And for most of us, like evangelism, that is harder just off the cuff. I think it's fantastic that you guys are praying, 
Lord, help me to worship. Help me to grow. Help me to focus. Help take this burden away for the time being. But we need to be praying, how can I stimulate others to love and good deeds this morning or tomorrow morning if we start Saturday? Or even our drive home today. Man, I didn't really talk to anyone. Lord, help me stimulate others next week. Too often we come and we want to be stimulated. More often than even that, we don't even want to be stimulated to love and good deeds. We don't want to be stimulated to holiness. We want people to come around us and feel sorry for us and tell us what we want to hear, which in the depths of our trials is often not, not Scripture, right? We need to stimulate one another. So all of this, look at the end of verse 25. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. When this was written, we're even closer. The day is drawing near. We're even closer to that. We don't know when he's coming, but we know we're a couple thousand years closer than when this was written. And he said, be serious. Stimulate one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. Don't skip church because the end of all things is coming. You've thought about that. You've played that game. You've asked that question. If you had one hour to live, one day to live, what would you do? It's pretty encouraging, isn't it, that your answer now is vastly different than your answer before you were a believer? Because most believers would be, do some pretty disgusting things for that hour. But now... You're thinking about people you would share the gospel with. You would think about saying I love you to people, saying goodbyes rather than going out and getting wasted and parting, right? And this is the idea here. Christ is coming soon, and that time is sooner than when I just said it a minute ago. You do this, right? You work harder when you see it's 4 o'clock and you've got to get the project done by 5 p.m. or you're staying after. You work harder. Focus more. Turn off TikTok and Facebook, right? You dig deep because the end of the workday is coming near. Last day of your five-day vacation. Oh, I haven't even been to the swimming pool yet. So what do you do? You wake up early to... Go get one of those beach chairs before anyone else reserves them because you only have a day left in Mexico or Miami or wherever you go. And this is the idea. The writer of Hebrews says, all the more as you know, as you see the world and know the end of all things is coming soon, the day is drawing near, Try harder. And isn't it interesting what the try harder here is? To help one another to be more Christ-like. We should pursue these things even more. We get so worked up when we see the state of our world and the state of society. We follow the news, we follow the politics, and you have two choices. You can get frustrated, you can get angry, you can commit to vote for certain people, you can give them money for their campaigns, you can go protest, 
Or you can double down and say, things are getting worse. The Lord is coming soon. Brother, sister, let's help one another. Let's do this. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us what the end entails. Let's break it down. He says, when he, speaking of Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, at the end of all things, Jesus will hand over or deliver, if you have the ESV, the kingdom to the Father, reminding us of the equality of the members of the Godhead while encouraging us in the reality of submissive roles. You have to understand that the the reason Jesus came was to save the lost. But the establishment of the church body was not merely for the time on earth or just to be a temporary entity to do good in the world. It was for the sake of renewing and redeeming the people, that is, humankind, that God created but were alienated from Him by their sin. And when you understand this, you realize that this was not just for earthly salvation, but for an eternal purpose and for God's glory. To redeem this people, to renew this earth, and then someday return the newly recovered world to the Father. like if a kid loses his stuffed animal at Disneyland and against all odds security finds it and it's been trampled on by the daily attendance of Disneyland which is somewhere around 10 million people just kidding I have no idea feels like that if you go and I haven't even gone in 25 years it's worse now from what I understand anyways It's dirty, it's tattered, and the security guard says, nah, we're Disney. We're going to wash this, we're going to take it to the the store that embroiders those Mickey hats, and we're going to have sew up the arm that was ripped off, as good as new, and then returns it to that child FedEx overnight express. Christ doesn't just say, Died for the sins of the people. There are millions of redeemed. Here you go, Father. Now, He's going to renew all of it. Bring it to the Father. Present it to the Father. And so kingdom here does not merely refer to the redeemed, but also to the rule of Christ, which makes up the environment in which we, the redeemed, exist, that we indwell Think about it in the same way an earthly king's kingdom is not just the castle he resides in or the people under his authority as he looks through that window and sees all the town folk. It includes all the lands, all the laws, everything that he rules over. The complete ecosystem in and under which his people live. Remember the Lion King? Simba, all that the sun touches, or I don't know. I haven't seen it lately, but remember that? He's basically, that's yours. That's the kingdom. Even things that you can't see because it pertains to your rule and control. And if those people in that earthly kingdom choose to rebel against the king, they run afoul of the law as an entire race. 
The king may send someone to restore the hearts of those in his kingdom so that they will once again align with his principles and the purposes of the king. He will imprison some. He will give money to others. He will fix the the job market, the stalls, the farmland. And that someone who is sent by the king when the job is accomplished can one day go through those big doors and walk down that red carpet and kneel in front of the king and say, King, I present to you a redeemed kingdom. The people have been restored and those who are rebelling have been taken care of. No longer rebelling against the king, but living in line with his will and rule. And if we're going to push the analogy all the way, the king will, as part of this, unleash his wrath on the remaining who do not obey so as to purge the kingdom to make it right again for his glory and for his people. And this is what Jesus does, but not in a physical way, but a spiritual And in keeping with the context, we understand that none of this could happen if the resurrection of the saints is not real. The reason the kingdom is not fully redeemed yet is because there still exists a world system under God's sovereignty and permission, as well as earthly powers. He has put his enemy over the world such that unbelievers walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in them, the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. And that's why he must first, as Paul writes at the end of verse 24, abolish all rule and all authority and power. The The word when or after, if you have the ESV and NIV, tells us that the delivering of the kingdom will not occur until after this, the abolishing. So what is this? Abolish means to render ineffective. It can be translated into English words such as dethrone, overthrow, annul, destroy is even fitting here. But what is it that Christ will abolish? To say that he will abolish or destroy rule, authority, and power, to say that would be borderline blasphemous. Look at the verse. All rule, all authority and power. ESV says every. Not most of it. Not some of it. Not leaving a a contingent of rebels. He will do away with all of it. A cop does good work. So does a judge. But they can't get rid of all the crime. Jesus can. Jesus' work will be complete. Let's talk quickly about the three items on this list that he will abolish. Because together they summarize all forms of power and individuals that oppose the will of God. These are evil powers which control the world. These can be human or satanic. They can be structural. They can be corporate They could be cosmological. They could be earthly. We cannot definitively say what each of these three words specifically refer to, but we can say what all three of them include. 
every form of government in this world, whether democracy or dictatorship, yes, whether liberal or conservative, and everything in between. It includes those in authority over others, not just in political arenas, but also social arenas, corporate arenas. Whether it's the latest movement for social justice or the leader of a nation, these three words also speak of the means by which all of the above maintain rule, police, armed forces, media. None of it will be necessary in eternity. Though many of them do good work and they are not blatantly evil, so to speak, or against the Lord, the system is not God-glorifying. The station, the bench, they are not in tune with the will of God. They do not make decisions purely for the glory of God. So they must be done away. When speaking of the end times, we know that this also refers to victory over the beast, the false prophet, the kings, Gog and Magog. And the abolishment of these things, these ideas and people comes from Jesus Christ who is redeeming the world so that they will never again exist. Never again. They will never again oppose God or threaten or mislead His people. There will no longer be any form or nuance even of corruption of the created world. Whether corruption in terms of sin or corruption in terms of nature. Jesus will take care of all of it. And when all of this is done, all things will be restored to what God originally desired it when He created. What He in creation designed and created all things to be. Perfect. No death. Walking with God. Glorifying God. Doing all things in relation and for His glory. So God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to restore the world. And that is what He has begun, and that is what He will do. He started it in His death, in His resurrection, in the church, in us, in you. And this is the power not only of His resurrection, but our resurrection. That all of, things, all of these things will come to pass, which includes our resurrection and the presentation of the renewed and restored kingdom, the best analogy we could think of in our finite minds and from Scripture is the Garden of Eden before the fall but globally and with all people. And you will be there. We will be there in earthly glorified bodies to be with our King forever and ever and ever. You know, in eternity, someone may come up to you They'll have a look of concern on their face. Be like, hey, who are you going to vote for? And you look at him 
and he'll look at you and you'll just start laughing and laughing. Say hallelujah. Amen. No more wondering. I used to live in a country, you know, here you hear the sirens of the police and you feel safe. I used to live in the country where you would hear a police siren and you think, what are they trying to get a bribe for now? Get scared. It wasn't safe at all. And if they were there to protect you, you felt even less safe because they were not trained. None of that. No more fear when you commit crimes because you won't commit crimes. It's perfect. We won't even recognize each other. Look, we, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we think about things we want to repent of. We look at each other and we think of the hurt that each other have, have laid upon us. We, no more. No sin. No felt needs. No out-of-whack emotions. Skin too thin, skin too thick, none of that. We hesitate to say that we are perfect because we're not, but we will one day be perfect. Perfect. Not like, whoa, he's perfect. No, perfect. No sin. No ailments. No more medicine. No more shots. No more third, fourth, fifth, twentieth booster shot. No more pharmacies. No more jobs. No more worrying. Will my son survive? Will grandma make it? Be racing grandma, dancing with grandma, worshiping with grandma. It's going to be a beautiful thing, and all because the resurrection is real. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we long to be with you and see that day. Help us to be faithful while we are here. Whether you take us in death or in rapture, we want to be faithful. Help us not to lose sight of what matters and why we are here. Thank you that we are part of this renewal of all things and help us to not be so consumed with the things of the world that we forget the eternal glory that awaits us. May we live for that day. May we respond to that reality and truth by being bold in our faith, in our evangelism, in our commitment to other believers. Help us to live beyond and above the entrapments of this so temporary and sinful world. Use us to that end, Lord. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.